Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 100 of our podcast. This is a special occasion for us. And uh, I, to mark the occasion, we're going to be talking to Justin Ling. He's a freelance investigative journalist, and he covers privacy, security, foreign policy, politics, law, defense, and where all those things meet. He's also the writer of the Substack, Bug-Eyed and Shameless, which is where I know him best. Welcome to the interview, Justin. Thanks for having me. I'm flattered to be guest number or guest on episode number 100. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being flattered. Uh, mm. Look, uh, where I re where I really got to know your work is your coverage of the uh, the con Freedom Convoy uh, mm -hmm. earlier in in this year, and you did sterling work, sterling thank work you. on that. And so, thank you for on behalf of all Canadians. Uh, except those, of course, who were in QAnon mm -hmm. and the conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Thank you, because that was really important stuff. Um, today, we're going to we're going to talk about your visit to the Halifax International Security Forum. Just wrapped up a few days ago. You were there. You talked to mm -hmm. some really interesting folks. But to set the context here, I want to talk about because I mean, this is energy talks, right? We're talking about energy. The oil and gas industry in Canada is deeply well, misinformation, disinformation, and conspiracy theories are deeply, deeply embedded in it. We think of Vivian Krauss and her crazy, mm -hmm. you know, theories about uh, uh, around uh, uh, foreign funding of environmentalists. We think about Brett Wilson, you know, mm -hmm. the former Dragon's Den and and uh, uh, millionaire whose Twitter feed is just a, I mean, it's it's a hot mess of that kind of stuff, and on and on and on. And the thing that I that really intrigues me, and I've written about this since about 2018, is the way the industry weaponizes it uh -huh. like this. And it reminded me so much. It was like I think you were writing about Putin and you were writing about China. And I was thinking, oh, my God, this is like the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, just on a bigger scale. Do you have you run into much into this much in the oil and gas industry? Uh -huh. Like, does it pop up? In, in your reporting? Yeah, for, for sure. So, so, you know, listen, I mean, when we talk about mis misinformation, disinformation and conspiracy theories, I mean, I always have this little line I give, you know, misinformation is, is a mistaken belief genuinely held. Disinformation is misinformation weaponized and conspiracy theories are both of them telling a story, right? So, you know, when we talk about these things, there is no doubt that there is misinformation rife in the oil and gas sector, right? People who whose livelihoods rely on oil and gas find themselves, uh, in I think in their perception, somewhat accurately, somewhat not, being targeted by a government who doesn't value in, uh, them, doesn't believe in the work they do. And it, it, it breeds this sort of belief that there must be something else going on, right? 
that people look for explanations that sort of um, give them a, a, a comfort blanket in a sense. You know, they want to believe that climate change is overhyped or made up. They want to believe that, in fact, climate crusaders are actually climate hypocrites. They want to believe that uh, oil and wind and, and whatever else um, you know, is not quite as effective as people would make it out to be. So, you know, I, I think there, there's, there's work that has to be done in kind of confronting that and figuring out what a middle ground is, right? You know, I actually do think there's a couple valid points there. I think there's a couple points that descend into anti-scientific hokum. But when we talk about the disinformation side of things, it's undeniable that uh, oil and gas companies, maybe not all of them, but I think almost every single one at some point in time, have weaponized that misinformation in order to frustrate effective policy, right? You know, oil and gas companies, even as they profess to believe in climate change publicly, will often fund organizations that undermine the science around climate and actually fight against good policy that would reduce CO2 emissions. So oil and gas companies have an enormous uh, blame to be shouldered here. And they have put us in this situation. Now, where the conspiracy theories get in are, are where people have taken all of this and run with it. Vivian Krauss is, is a perfect example. Um, you know, over the years, Ezra Levant has, has played into this. You've seen this uh, come out in full force in the sort of Pandora's box that Jason Kenney opened uh, with his inquiry into foreign financing of the environmentalist movement. Um, this has descended into, you know, I use the word bug-eyed a lot because it's going to name my substack after it, but you know, it descended to this bug-eyed nonsense um, that has has completely percolated um, deranged theories about some evil international conspiracy that's secretly behind the effort to destroy oil and gas in this country. And until we dispatch with all of this stuff, we can't have a real sensible conversation about what the future of oil and gas looks like, what the future of nuclear looks like, and what the future of renewables looks like. Well, I would agree. And Vivian is such a good example because she really does believe this stuff. Like I, yeah. I would never, I would never say that Vivian Krauss is a liar. Vivian, I've so. seen, you know, I've gone on her blog, I've gone over her, her, her information and, and it's, it, 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 it wouldn't pass muster in a middle school civics class. You know, no. that's, that's her level of analysis. It's just, it's embarrassingly thin and, and full of, conspiracies and, and so on, but she really believes it. Yeah. And then, you know, Stephen Harper uh, weaponized it in uh, what, 2012, 2013, when he, you know, she, Vivian had alleged that the, the Canadian Revenue Agency was, you know, that, oh, sorry, that environmental groups, charities were overstepping their bounds and breaking the CRA Act. And, and so he, he initiated an investigations into quite a number of, of these environmental groups that are charities, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the Hearst, where I have a little anecdote here to illustrate this. So in, in 2019, during the Alberta election, I was in Alberta covering it. And Tim McMillan, who was the CEO at the time, uh, gave a presentation, I think it was to the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce. And he said, uh, Zipporah Berman, uh, Jane Fonda, you are responsible for the because you know you were involved in this tar sands campaign for the for the loss of tens of thousands of jobs. I mean that's not even fact backed up by data, right? I mean I can go to the data and 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 tell you pretty quickly how many jobs got lost in a particular period of time, and it wasn't tens of thousands. And so I contacted the Canadian Association of, 
Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, and I asked for an interview. That's what journalists do, right? I wanted to clarify, where did you get this information? Why did you say this thing, which is like patently untrue? And their media person came back and said, well, we're not going to give you the interview. And we got this from Vivian Krauss. And I said, mm -hmm. look, here's the data. I gave them the data from StatsCan. Here's the data. And this disproves what Tim is saying. He's in an election campaign. He, You claim your organization is nonpartisan. You can't do this. And they came back and blackballed me. They yep. just said, we're not, we're not, we're not going to give you any interviews. We're not talking to you anymore. Goodbye. Get, get lost. And, and this is the kind of way that this particular industry, uh, how they foment conspiracy theories, how they, you know, weaponize, you know, misinformation, disinformation. And it just seems like it's the Canadian wrinkle on what's going on internationally. Well, and what's so frustrating about this is that if you're somebody, now I think I have complex feelings about this, but if you're somebody who genuinely believes that there is a place for Canadian production in the medium to medium long term, um, you know, if you kind of believe in the ethical oil argument that it's better made here under some standards, under some kind of social contract, as opposed to Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, Nigeria, wherever, um, all of this hurts that effort, right? You know, you have put a line in the sand that said we can't play under the same reality, right? You, you've drawn a line in the sand that has said, um, you know, either you believe that climate change is a hoax or that this transnational progressive movement is a whole bunch of Marxists out to destroy America and Canada. Um, and you believe that, um, you know, we have to keep producing into the indefinite future or you're with the hippies and the environmentalists, right? Like they they, they have drawn the lines in the sand. And maybe you can blame the environmentalists for doing some similar kind of balkanization there. But nevertheless, if you decide you want to play, you know, go to war with, with conspiracy theories and disinformation in your in your arsenal, then it's very, very hard to have a reasoned, thoughtful conversation on the other end, right? If you genuinely believe that Canada ought to continue producing oil and gas and maybe ought to be an LNG, a serious LNG producer into the foreseeable future, then maybe it's time to start playing on the same battlefield, start playing in reality, start actually using truth and facts to have this conversation as opposed to um, creating your own alternative reality. Well, and there's some really, uh, uh, I think, obvious uh, political consequences for that. I mean, the the Canadian Conservative Party, uh, Andrew Scheer, Aaron O'Toole, and now uh, Pierre Polyev, uh, you know, have all echoed the industry's uh, policies, what it wants on the policy front. And, you know, they've, they've come up with these convoluted climate plans that are panned in the national media, that the liberals, you know, are just fodder for, for, the, for the liberals during elections. And so they actually have shot themselves in the foot uh, and by 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 have being beholden to this to the industry's weaponized misinformation. And and it and you see Polyev now, I mean Polyev was raised in Calgary. You know, he comes out of that, that Calgary school. And it would will be inter it'll be interesting to see whether he can come up with a climate plan in 2025, assuming there's an election then, and and Tack to the middle and attract enough votes uh, to uh, to get elected, but enough enough of oil and gas for a while. I'm because I'm keenly interested in the international aspect of this that you you wrote about in your in your Substack. So you went to this you went to the uh, to the security forum. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've been going for, for for years now. I actually think it's a it's a fascinating and interesting uh, weekend. Um, it's kind of fantastic that it's here in Canada. Um, people have panned it as as you know. I've I've heard everything from you know it's a NATO piss up, which is actually that's partly true, but you know that it's an arms dealer conference that it's also a complete absolute nonsense. Um, you know, it is actually a really exceptional place for kind of all elements of Western society to show up and kind of hash out some of the security issues that are facing North America, Europe, and the rest of the world. So, you know, everything from, you know, what does it look like for Taiwan to defend itself against a hypothetical Chinese invasion? You know, what does it look like um, to actually support democratic movements uh, throughout Africa? You know, what does it actually mean to advance uh, the rights of women and girls in South America? You know, there's all sorts of really interesting conversations that happen, including conversations about what the future of energy looks like and what the future of climate change um fighting looks like you know there was folks there this past weekend who had attended uh the cop summit just immediately prior who offered a you know a kind of um somewhat dour uh read about where we're going uh, in the near future um but you know it is it is kind of an exceptional opportunity for a lot of people whether it's you know for military diplomacy politics uh business whatever to get together and chat about these issues uh, and it's great that it's in canada there's not a lot of forms like this and it's cool that one of them is in nova scotia now, you wrote about uh, a number of uh, the folks that you met there. Andrew Shearer is the first one we're going to talk about. And then there's also Yasmin Green from uh, uh, Google's uh, Jigsaw yeah, subsidiary, jigs- we'll call jigsaw, it. Yeah, yeah. And then Senator Chris Coons from the U.S. Well, let's start with Shearer. So he's the head of Australia's primary intelligence analysis, analysis mm-hmm. agency. And In that context, you wrote about how the emerging problem isn't that Russian propaganda is working on Americans, Canadians, and Europeans. It's that misinformation here is being weaponized elsewhere. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's quite a frustrating and, and darkly funny problem, right? Um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking now about a problem that was facing us five years ago, right? We spent a lot of time talking about what does it look like to have a Russian troll farm targeting our domestic political scene? We talk a lot about what does it mean for RT and Sputnik to broadcast Russian disinformation into the US and Canada and Europe. The reality is this is no longer the pressing problem of our time. Russia has largely given up trying to influence our domestic political scene, at least that directly. Um, they have um, the, the reach and, and, and scope of RT and Sputnik is, is severely limited. What we're actually seeing is this interplay between conspiracy theorists and the far right here in North America and in Europe and Russia. And it's a symbiotic relationship, right? To the point where when Tucker Carlson does a rant, explaining that the real reason behind the Russian invasion is in fact because the U.S. government and Anthony Fauci was funding laboratories in Ukraine that were producing dangerous pathogens that could cause the next pandemic like they did with COVID-19. When Tucker Carlson goes on air and talks about all of that, it gets rebroadcast into Russia. There was actually an edict sent out on one of the state broadcast channels that said that uh, hosts should use Tucker Carlson wherever possible. And then that feeds back into Tucker's show. And there's this kind of back and forth that goes on. And, you know, according to some polling data we have, some, something like 10 to 15% of Americans believe this biolabs conspiracy theory, believe this, which is originated from the Russian uh, foreign ministry. So that is a really difficult problem to solve for. And it creates this 
kind of untouchable class of people in our countries that you really can't talk to because they live in an alternate reality. Again, these are people who are QAnon. In some cases, people who believe that climate lockdowns are coming, people who believe that the World Economic Forum runs the world, people who believe that the transnational progressive movement is the 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 the, the, the puppet master behind the whole world. You know, that is where Russia is being effective right now. It's in cooperating with their own domestic extremist or conspiracy movements, not with imposing it on us. But you argue that the those uh, that disinformation is now most dangerous because it's being disseminated in Mexico City and uh, mm -hmm. Bangkok, uh, the global south. Uh, why is why is that important? Uh, you know, these are the areas in which Russia and to even a larger degree, China are looking to create influence, right? I mean, you know, this is not dissimilar to the Cold War tactics of, of, of Russia trying to, or the Soviet Union then, trying to support, um, you know, left-leaning socialist movements around the world to kind of give it a, a, a kind of transnational, um, you know, footprint. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's depending, it depends on what they're using that influence for. So, you know, RT is more popular in in the global south in particularly south america than cnn in in, in spanish is right you know it's the perfect example but we're talking about hundreds of millions of people who subscribe to this and if those countries if those governments are now leaning towards the idea that they have no say they have no influence they have no interest in what happened in ukraine well then every vote of the un general assembly including some votes of the un uh, security council uh, are suddenly moot right and you know going beyond that you know we're talking about a, a an international cooperation movement that is supporting autocracy, that is um, you know creating kind of supply chains that will feed into whether it's the Iranian regime, um, you know, it's, it's security state, whether it's um, you know products that China has made in Xinjiang. You know, we're looking at an international kind of economic block that is a direct rejection of freedom, democracy, free trade, whatever. And that is the sort of soft power Russia is using. And just really briefly, you know, it, it's also in some cases causing humanitarian and human rights atrocities, right? You know, Russia is using its private military forces as a tool of that power. And it's sending in uh, particularly the Wagner group into the Sahel and the Middle East. And it has uh, murdered and massacred civilians and supported military juntas that have uh, killed their own population. So this is a really pressing problem. Well, now Shearer had some uh, suggestions on how the West could combat this. And one phrase that, uh, as you say, got the hair on, on the back of your neck up, open source collection at a massive scale by security services. And explain your objection to that. And in fact, what it is. Well, I mean, this is not all that. This is a new brand for what the National Security Agency, the NSA, as well as Canada's uh, CSE, um, the UK's GCHQ, a whole bunch of other signals intelligence services uh, were doing that we that was revealed in the Snowden leaks, right? You know, kind of bulk data collection, whether it's metadata, whether it's actual content, whether it's um, you know some some open source data, um, you know, was being used to create the framework for. A, a pretty extraordinary abuse of civil liberties. So I think we have to be incredibly skeptical when we hear anybody uh, from the security state talking about mass collection, because um, kind of by definition, mass collection means no warrants, means no uh, you know lawful purpose, means no reasonable grounds. Um, but on the flip side of that, 
we have been talking for a while about, you know, how do we figure out a system where we can pick up on these narratives before they become mainstream disinformation? How do we pick up on extremist groups before they launch an attack? How do we find individuals who could be at risk of launching a, a lone wolf terror attack before they do it? And unfortunately, this is probably how we do it. Open source data collection looking uh, kind of on a, on a massive scale enabled by AI and machine, AI and machine learning looking at what's being said on Telegram and Gab and Parler and Twitter and Facebook. So we have to figure out how to do this. We have to figure out how to do it in a, in a legal framework where we actually have this discussion. It doesn't get kind of rammed in through the back door like a lot of the, um, you know, the PRISM projects the, the NSA had run uh, did. So, you know, we have to have this conversation. It's kind of alarming to hear it kind of just dropped uh, as an afterthought on a panel at a security forum. I would like to see governments come forward and say, listen, here is how we're going to do it. And here's how we're going to protect your privacy. To Canada's credit, we've done a little bit of that. Uh, we, we saw in the in the updates to the CSIS Act and some other national security legislation, the government has sort of envisioned this and created a legal regime around it that's pretty good. Um, so it's not impossible to do. Um, it's just important we have this conversation and, and have it in an open way that isn't just imposed on us. Now, the next person you wrote about is Yasmin Green, who is the CEO of Jigsaw. So that's Google's moonshot attempt to make the internet more of a source of good. And... She was arguing that uh, that all conspiracy theories are collapsing into a single political ideology, paranoid populism. And you said that was a terrifying development. And I can mm -hmm. see the point. I'm starting to see this on my own social media feeds, mm -hmm. primarily Twitter and and uh, and Facebook. But what I'll tell you what scares me is uh, I've stopped uh, posting my political columns on uh, on LinkedIn. Because I get uh, attacked by the oil bros, you know, the, the oil and gas uh, advocates, the supporters, and they're not, they're not, you know, Bernard the roughneck. They're like the CEO. They're the VP of, of like significant uh, companies who are coming on and they, and they go on the off on these unhinged rants that are clearly rooted in, in conspiracy theories, clearly rooted in, in misinformation. And it's, it scares the hell out of me that, you know, the C-suites of Calgary are occupied, a lot of those C-suites are occupied by people who think like this. And I'll give you an example. There was, just a moment while I find it here. So I want to I want to quote this. Yep. So in, in 2019, uh, CAP had a, a press conference. And in that press conference was Jeff Tonkin, the CEO of Birchcliff Energy. Now, that's a, a mid-sized energy company. And here's what he said. He said, what we believe is that the federal government is positioning itself to let the energy industry die so that they can get votes to get reelected. Not only did he say it in the press conference, but Cap then put it in the press mm -hmm. press release. Like, it, well, this wasn't some offhanded comment. This was, you know, Cap puts it in a release. That's a far more official. It's like the good housekeeping stamp of approval on that comment. And I wrote, I wrote a column entitled, would you lend billions to an oil CEO who thinks the Canadian government is out to get them? Hmm. I mean, that's, we're not talking about just people, you know, the tin tinfoil hat guys on the ground. We're talking, I mean, this goes, at least in, in, in the oil industry, this goes right up to the top. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes up to the top of uh, our political scene as well. I mean, you know, it's Pierre Polyev who's been trading in the conspiracy theory that the World Economic Forum is some um, transnational, um, you know, evil empire. 
And I don't know that he believes it. I think he's willing to weaponize it. I think that's true for a ton of people in industry and politics. They don't necessarily believe the nonsense they're spewing, but they realize the um, sort of rhetorical gain they get from it. So, you know, the paranoid populism is my term for this. I've been following this for years now, from the rise of QAnon um, to various extremist movements that, you know, date back decades, not just a couple of years. Um, and, and yeah, with the, this sort of confluence of all of these these different uh, conspiracy theories and, and ideas um, is becoming really worrying. Now, you know, I, I also think we have to be very careful about know who we ascribe to being on this kind of fringe right um you know there are people who are kind of have some almost quaint old school types of of, of paranoia you know the, the government's out to get <laughs> us the government wants to destroy the industry i almost find that refreshing because if you delve into the world it's a sort of hermetically sealed echo chamber where a lot of these people operate you know they're saying you know, the World Economic Forum and the UN and uh, the World Health Organization uh, created the pandemic, created the conditions for lockdown, and they're all doing it so that they can impose a Chinese-style total surveillance system, and the next step will be climate lockdowns when they finally weaponize, you know, the climate hysteria to, to its fullest degree. You know, that is a level of derangement that means you can't really operate in society, right? Like, how do you do anything? How do you access services from the state? How do you have conversations with friends and family? How do you engage with anybody? When you believe that our freedom and liberty is just mere months away from being totally destroyed and that the people in charge are part of a, a secret cabal, in some cases, a Satanist secret cabal that murders children, right? You know, that puts you into a class where you can't really operate in society normally. And that's what Green is talking about when she's talking about all of these conspiracy theories collapsing onto each other. You don't find anyone anymore who just believes the 2020 election was stolen or who just believes the World Economic Forum is dangerous who, or who just believes that COVID-19 was created in a lab designed as a bioweapon. You have to believe kind of all of it. It is a lifestyle at this point. Well, let's talk about the hermetically sealed uh, echo chamber where a lot of this takes place. And you write about the the new platforms, Parler, uh, Gab, Rumble, BitChute, DuckDuckGo. I mean, there's on and on and on. I've never heard of most of these. Yep. And and I imagine that most of my listeners have not heard of most of these. And But this is where these conversations take place uh, away from the the prying eyes of those of us who prefer evidence and, and rational conversation. I guess maybe I'm flattering myself here, but nevertheless, we at least, you know, claim that we do. Uh, and and I can only imagine, because I know you hang out on there, you know, to kind of keep tabs on these guys. I can only imagine the lunacy of some of those conversations. Well, and let's talk a little bit about these platforms because I think it's quite interesting because we always think about misinformation, disinformation sort of happening on Facebook and Twitter because that's the conversation we've had for the last couple of years, right? Twitter was the Twitter and Facebook were the preferred places for Russia to try to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Green, um, and I, you know, I don't want to give Google too much credit here because I don't think they've they've covered themselves in glory over recent years. I've had to hector them to take down, um, you know, Russian disinformation and conspiracy websites from their news rankings. Anyway, you know, Green 
points out because she she was running this panel interviewing conspiracy theorists over the last couple of years and she was saying that during the midterms a lot of them really started feeling the heat from moderation the fact that they couldn't go on facebook or twitter uh, or i think linkedin is actually very bad for moderation but whatever you know instagram let's say the, the fact that they couldn't go on there and say the midterms are about to be stolen um, biden's going to ring the election votes are being you know cast by dead people whatever the fact that they couldn't say that made them really frustrated and you've seen this frustration grow over recent years that's why people have decamped to these alternative services the issue is when they get there it's not just that there's no moderation policies it's that disinformation is encouraged it's the point of the platform parlor which was supposed to get bought out by kanye west i'm not sure that deal is still on is a platform where anti-semitism is rife you know it's not uncommon to see swastikas and nazi flags on profiles left right and center and some of them have thousands tens of thousands in some cases hundred thousands of followers gab even worse um you see QAnon everywhere, white supremacists, um, you know, uh, white nationalist groups. Um, Rumble, actually based in Toronto, is a YouTube clone that is home to all manner of conspiracy broadcasts, including one video that raised about a million dollars that claimed that the COVID-19 vaccine was actually you, was made using snake venom or that COVID-19 was snake venom. I can't quite remember. It doesn't really matter. It's complete lunacy. You know, these platforms um, have become Petri dishes for this misinformation and disinformation. And I'm not sure that we're better off, you know, at least when these people were on Facebook, they had access to regular people, regular ideas, news, right? When they were on Twitter, people challenged them and said, you're insane, this is crazy. When you're on Rumble, when you're on Gab, when you're on Parler, you know, nobody challenges you. You're actually encouraged. You're, you're, you, it gets fed into. You get people actually aping people on with this stuff. So it's actually hastening the radicalization prob uh, problem, and, and it's making these ideas more intense and more dangerous. And what's the solution to this? I don't know that we have one right now. I mean, we have to talk seriously about what de-radicalization looks like on an individual level, but you can't block these websites. You can't bring them under the scope of domestic regulation. Um, you can't reason with them. Um, maybe you can sue them. The Alex Jones trial maybe gives us a, a platform for that. But, uh, you know, it, it's a really difficult question. And I can tell you, Google does not have the answers. Well, I guess the question then becomes, how big is the problem? Now, I, I'm... I'm, I'm Took some number of well in your in your piece, uh, you were talking about you know moving disinformation from a platform with eighty percent uptake to one which is ten percent, you know theoretically limits the pool of people who can be radicalized. But let's assume just for sake of argument that it is that pool of radicalized people in any you know U.S. and, and Canada is ten percent. It sure feels like it's growing. Yeah, I mean, I, I published I published some data from Pew Research um, a couple of weeks ago that actually asked people, "Do you use Rumble? Do you use BitChute? Do you use Gab?" And we're talking eight to twelve percent, right? And that's people who would respond to a pollster and talk about it, right? So eight to twelve percent, which actually more or less matches up with the numbers I've seen. I mean, we're talking about millions, not thousands. Um, and that's in the U.S. alone. Uh, Canada also, many websites are quite popular as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's a big number. And and I suspect it's probably north of 12 percent, you know, under 20, above 10. But that's a big chunk of the population who live in an alternate reality. Well, we we kind of in our little community, uh, we live on Parksville and Vancouver Island. It's about, you know, 10,000, 15,000, uh, maybe with a 
the neighboring community, Qualicum Beach, it might be, you know, catchment area of maybe 40 to 50,000. And, and it, it, there's a fair, it's, you know, lots of retired folks, but lots, also lots of, uh, you know, it's highly rural outside the, the city limits. And when the, uh, the Freedom Convoy, the Sympathy Convoys started up uh, this summer, my, my wife and I, one morning, uh, Saturday morning, we were on our way to the, the beach, walk the dog. And, and we got caught up in this thing. We didn't have any clue that it was, it was start, it was, it was going to be on that day. And we got caught in the middle of it, you know, and all the, the, the honking and the flags and all of that. And so I, I, I checked out later on, I checked out the Facebook pages for these people and it's all the kind of, you know, stuff that you would imagine would, would be on there. And it's, so this is, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that this kind of disinformation is moving off the social media platforms. And at least in this instance, we, we uh, saw it, you know, in real life, IRL in our little community and all up and down the Van Vancouver Island, because they were, you know, collecting trucks and what have you, the, the, the convoy in Nanaimo and as they were driving down to Victoria. And is how much should we worry about that? That, that this stuff starts to leak into our communities and and we begin to see the convoys, the rallies, the, you know, other political activity out, out in the real world. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. I mean, for, for starters, you know, we talk about this as a right-wing radicalization problem because it is, because inherently all of these movements are appealing to the right. Now, I don't think there's anything inherently conservative about what's happening here. I mean, I, I you know, I tend to think conservatism as being kind of a um, a movement willing to face tough realities and make tough decisions. This is a, a movement of children who uh, don't like the world, so they've created their own one. I don't think there's anything conservative about that. But nevertheless, you know, it is it, it, it self-identified as right-wing. Um, it has attracted a surprising number of politically disaffected left-wing and centrist people, uh, people who had a tough time during the pandemic, people who have been disengaged from politics for a long time, people who may have believed some kooky things on the left that has brought them right around to the right. Now, horseshoe theory, being what it, yada, yada, yada. So you're going to find this in places where you don't expect it. Yeah, Vancouver Island is probably a pretty good example. You're going to see it in places where you might not expect people to start voicing this kind of nonsense. I've seen it in Montreal, you know, a place that you, you tend to think is kind of the bastion of, uh, of of kind of progressive leftiness. You know, I've seen a ton of people who, you know, I would I would identify if I if I saw on the street as a hippie wandering around saying vaccines are murder um, and you know, encouraging people to go watch a rumble video, right? It has absolutely spilled into the real world. I can tell you for a fact that spending a ton of time in downtown Ottawa during the occupation, the you know the signs encouraging people to go subscribe to my Rumble page, the number of people who were influencers uh, on Parler or Gab or whatever, it was significant. The number of narratives that I've only ever seen on these alternative social media pages appear, you know, coming out of people's mouths on signs on stage as people were talking was absolutely mind-boggling um, this is spilling into the real world now what does that mean i think we don't really know yet um you know if the worst we're going to get is the sort of freedom convoy and occupation that's not great but my god it could be much worse uh, we've seen 
instances where things have gotten totally out of hand the guy who drove his truck through the front gates of Rideau hall in 2020 uh, was there under a belief that the prime minister was engaged at least we believe was there under the belief that the prime minister was engaged in human trafficking of children and 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 you know was probably there to to voice support for a QAnon um, rally um, he had a plan to kill the prime minister because he thought he was imposing a communist coup um, the, the the folks who were arrested in Coots, alberta uh, allegedly with a plot to murder rcmp officers engaged in a particular kind of, of right-wing kind of sovereign citizen nonsense um, that turns on the idea that the, that the government is illegitimate. So we've seen a ton of this. We've seen um, murders happen in Canada, in the U.S., tied to this, this growing paranoia on the right. And it's hard to say if it gets worse. It, it's hard to say if it gets better. Uh, I have to hope that now the pandemic is kind of really petering out, that people kind of go back to their regular lives and disengage from this stuff. But that's not what we've seen thus far. So there's a lot of reasons to be worried. I don't think we should be alarmist about the threat here. Um, but I, I think, you know, again, just the shooting in Colorado Springs comes out of a wealth of misinformation and disinformation and outright hate about the LGBTQ community. So, you know, we just really briefly, we talked about this in really serious terms when it was the Islamic State radicalizing people. We are not talking about this with the same severity now that it's people here at home doing the same kind of radicalization. Well, let's go on and talk about Senator Chris Coons, because he had an idea uh, here that really struck a chord. Uh, you made the point that Putin is increasing investment in Russian platforms, RT, Sputnik, and so on. China is increasing investment in their platforms. And the Americans are not doing a particularly good job of countering that. And Coons made the point that culture is one of the United States' greatest sources of soft power. And of course it is. It, it, Hollywood, right? Mm. And, 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 and literature and, and, and television. And so much of, as Canadians, we understand that probably better than anybody else. So what do we make of this argument that a potential response to the, the paranoid conspiracies, paranoid populism, uh, is is culture is is uh, is our culture North American culture American culture whoever's culture, but culture that comes from a democratic country uh, and espouses our values. What how how does that happen? Listen, there's, there's good arguments for it uh, because I think there's really two problems here. One is how do you stop people from descending into this madness, right? What do you do with that 80% uh, who don't believe in these conspiracy theories, but could be targeted by them, could be susceptible to them, right? What do you do about them? Figuring out what resiliency looks like, information resiliency is really important, right? So how do you convince them that they should trust at the very least in our system? They don't have to trust each individual politician. They don't have to trust each individual party. They can hate most or all politicians. That's okay. In many cases, that's reasonable and rational. How do you convince them to play on the same terms as everybody else? How do you convince them to play in reality and to fight that fight? Um, you know, actually using facts and 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 the, the situation before us and not descend into make-believe, right? That's number one. And 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 on that question, better media, better funded media, um, you know, more organic culture, funding for artists, funding for people who, uh, for activists, for organizations that can criticize the government on legitimate terms. That's really important. A robust civil society is critical and civil society has been hollowed out by the pandemic. Uh, a lot of organizations are feeling the pinch. A lot of news organizations are shutting down. You know, figuring out what financing looks like for that, that is not necessarily just checks from the government is really important. 
on the flip side, what do you do about the 10 to 20% who have engaged in this complete fantasy land? I don't know that more news, better news, more culture, more state-funded culture is the way to reach them, right? We were really hopeful, some people were, that more fact-checking would, would would disabuse them of these wild notions. And what you've seen is a complete opposite. You've actually seen a ton of people on the far right in this paranoid populist realm say, if a fact check says it's false, then I know it's true. Like you actually see this, 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 again, childlike reflexiveness that says if the state tells me or the media tells me or you know, some some official tells me it's true, I'm gonna think it's false. And you know, I I can only hope that the way to solve that is by using the the very thing that got them there in the first place, right? A ton of these people took up the mantle of I'm gonna do my own research, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig into this myself. I'm going to be the investigative journalist that I want to see in the world. I can only hope that trying to figure out how to, to, to disrupt that and give them actual legitimate information, help them realize that they've been sold a bill of goods, help them understand that they've, they've been playing in fantasy land is the way to get out of this. I don't really know how to do that yet, to be totally honest. I don't think Chris Coons does. I don't think Google does. I don't think anyone does at the moment. I want to uh, uh, share a little anecdote, and then I want to get on to the how do you fund journalism, the better journalism, more more, more journalism. And so here's the anecdote. Um, in 2021, I interviewed a PPC, People's Party of Canada, uh, which is rife with conspiracy, this mm -hmm. paranoid population, populism. And I, I interviewed Nadine Wellwood, who, uh, because they the party put her forward as their... Uh, as their pipeline expert, and she was a realtor or something, financial planner from Calgary. Mm -hmm. And one line sticks out. I mean, it was a it was a shit show of an interview. It was just bizarre because you know I was trying to counter some of her comments. Well, no, that's not true. You know, did he? Here's the here's the data. Here's what the data says. And at one point, she said, "Facts. Who needs facts and data?" And okay, so. It was 15 minutes of, oh my God, look at what Markham's doing. How did you put, put up with that? So now Nadine Wellwood here just last month uh, was running for the UCP nomination in Alberta. And and I started posting this this uh, interview again, and it really got picked up by uh, a lot of my of my readers. It, it, or, you know, it, it actually got a, a pretty wide audience. And of course, later on, her she was disqualified uh, from, from uh, running for the nomination. But here's the point I'm getting at, Justin, and that is I've given up on trying to convince the Lunatunes, the paranoid uh, uh, populace, uh, that they're wrong. What I'm trying to do is inoculate the yeah. normal people against. I'm I'm prepared to let the eight to twelve percent people just go, write them off. You know, there's not there's nothing much we can do. Instead, concentrating concentrate on the people who do need the evidence, who are who are willing to look at, you know, rational argument. And I, that's my personal take on it. What do you think of that? No, I mean, and that's quite right. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. You know, that, that, that trying to figure out how to protect the 80% from the 20, it's, it's important. Like inoculation is kind of ironically the perfect world, the perfect word, um, because that's what it is. It, it's, it's vaccinating them against misinformation and it's not telling them we're going to, and I don't think the solution is we're going to make sure you never see it. We're going to ban it. We're going to hide it. We're going to shut down anybody who says the wrong thing or anyone says who peddles in conspiracy theories. Cause I think that makes the problem worse. I think when you put something behind a curtain, people's instinct is to open the curtain and go, there must be something valuable here. 
I think what our, the way we solve this is give people the right information and the critical thinking skills necessary, and not just in an abstract way, but in a very particular way by giving them good information, good science, good research, and help them get better educated. So that when they confront one of these conspiracy theories, they go, I know that's nonsense, right? You know, that is, we have to figure out for that 80%. Now, again, for that 20%, the 10, 15, 20%, whatever it is, um, I do think there was a time where if people engaged, because there's always been 10 to 12% who, who believe ridiculous things, but there's saving grace is that they also believe normal things, right? You can believe that 9-11 was an inside job, but also believe like, hey, climate change is a real problem. And hey, when I go and vote, it, it, my vote still matters, right? You know, if anything, it actually motivated people, um, maybe not for the wrong reasons, but towards candidates that, for example, were you know anti-Iraq war. Okay, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. You know, it is a conspiracy theory that is manageable at the very least. Where we're at right now, is because people believe all of the conspiracy theories because it's become part of their identity. They can't really engage on normal terms with us on anything anymore. Um, I don't think they're all there. I don't think this is all the 10, 20%. Uh, I talked to people during the Freedom Convoy who I had a great conversation with and who I think we could agree with on eight things out of 10. And those two things are wild, but you know, maybe that's where you figure out where middle ground is. The real concern I have is where people start getting into that space where they disconnect and they retreat from reality and from society entirely. And I still think we have to work hard to prevent that from happening. It's difficult. Maybe it's impossible, but I think we have to try. And one of the the ways to do that, of course, is with good journalism. And yeah. uh, you and I have been in this business long enough to, you know, we started to see uh, after 2005, actually, is when newspaper revenues took a dive because of the big social media platforms. And and since then, the business model has just been completely hollowed out, and and we've seen you know layoffs and newspapers and failures, and and all, all we don't have to go into that. Everybody I think is familiar with, with the problems in the in the uh, in journalism and in the news uh, business. And just as an FYI, uh, next week, um, uh, my wife and I, Joanne, uh, who comes from TV, I come from print. Uh, will that will mark our fifteenth, the start of our fifteenth year in independent uh, online journalism? And somebody asked me the other day, "Well, you know, how'd you how'd you survive financially?" And I said, "Well, you know, poverty. Yeah, you know, that's how we that's how we did it. And, and up until this year, when we we finally got a, a foundation grant, uh, you know, we we toughed it out over a lot of years, and 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 mainly through our, you know, our middle age years, which is pretty tough." But here's my point. Uh, we've also seen in those years the emergence of independent journalists like yourself. I mean, there's a lot of terrific, terrific journalism being done and probably, well, you know, like you and I can think of a long list of independent journalists yeah. who are doing good work. But how do we get them properly financed? Because this is the this is so important to democracy. And, and as you say, we don't want them to be getting checks from governments. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't think it's the end of the world that the government is cutting checks for major newspapers to make sure they don't go under. Because, you know, I'm going to tell you a second why I think independent journalism is, is really worth funding directly and is in many cases more efficient. But I don't think there's enough independent journalists in this country um, to be entrepreneurs and to set up shop in every small town enough to replace the small papers and the small radio stations and the small TV stations that go away. So I think there has to be 
at the very least is a stopgap measure, some level of government funding. Now, I, I think the government went on a very convoluted mission to try and create an arm's length process there. I'm not sure they succeeded. I think there could have been much better ways of doing this. But nevertheless, I think the fact that the government is making sure that some of these papers don't go under is a good thing. But these papers, Post Media in particular, as well as a few others, are so inefficient. Every dollar the government gives them, that's not a dollar going to journalism. That's a dollar that's paying off hedge fund debt. It's a dollar that's paying middle managers. That's a dollar right. that's paying executive compensation. It's complete bullshit, to be totally honest with you. And it's it's infuriating to see post-media hoover up all that money um, and use their papers as a as a, as a bully pulpit to, to, to lobby for that kind of funding. There's also other startups that I think have, have taken a bunch of money and haven't produced good work to result to, 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 to show for it. Um, so I think I'm, I'm very frustrated with the way uh, the government is funding this. Now, what can you do? What can individuals do? I mean, you know, there was a ton of independent journalists who are on Substack like myself, um, who are doing in some cases, local reporting, national reporting, international reporting, who uh, every Every dollar you give them is going to go directly to their work, right? Every dollar that comes in through my Substack funds me to be able to do this work long term. And the more money I get, the more journalism I'm going to do with it. And if I can't do it, I'm going to start hiring people. So, you know, and I think, you know, Paul Wells, also on Substack, is doing that. Jen Gerson and Matt Gurney at The Line are doing that. My friend Christopher Curtis here in Quebec is doing that. There's a whole bunch of examples of people doing this. Andrew Leach has his own Substack these days that I think is quite good. Um, so there's a ton of great examples. There's also you know, startup outfits uh, like the Narwhal that are doing great environmental reporting, like the National Observer. There's a great, there's some great examples of places where if you give them a dollar, that is a dollar going into journalism. So I think we need to figure out where our money ought to be spent, right? If we as individuals have, let's say, $100 a year to put into journalism, don't put it into the National Post. Don't put it into Post Media. Put it into something that is going to be efficient, that is going to get you bang for your buck, and that will help create a, a sustainable and robust and aggressive media ecosystem that holds people to account and gets to the heart of the matter. Well, I, you know, as as somebody who has a financial interest in that in that little speech you gave, I I <laughs> uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, but uh, you know, it it's a it, it's it's a difficult go, and um, we've never our you know energy media and, and the company we had before that um, was never able to get enough subscri subscriptions to to make a, a go of it, you know. And and the problem is, of course, you're doing you're doing journalism at the same time you're doing marketing. And, and it's it's it takes up a lot of time and and a lot of energy it's, and it's it's a tough go and you know some in fact maybe many you know have been able to do it and others haven't I, I know plenty that yeah. that uh, you know small independent outfits maybe local news but or maybe specialty news I think that that's the the biggest problem yeah. you know in energy we're kind of nerdy. You know, we do we do energy politics, but we do a lot of energy policy and and uh, you know big global kinds of issues, and that's a there's small audience for that, but it's an important audience. I well, I, also, I would argue. Just really briefly, you know, I, I think it's also figuring out what advertising looks like, right? It used to be that if you ran a mom and pop shop or um, you know a chain of restaurants or whatever, you went to the local paper and you advertised, right? Because because you knew that they were reaching, you know, people in your community and people who might want to go to your business. Uh, but also, I think to some degree, because, you know, that's how our society sort of function. Newspapers sort of serve that role. Those dollars funded the local newspaper. We don't do that anymore. You know, right. it, 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 we still see people throwing money. I'm going to keep it on post media because I think it's a, it's a it's an incredibly frustrating, wasteful pit of money. Um, you know, it, it is a chain that still takes up a huge amount of advertising dollars. And when papers go under or where they cut down days of the week, those companies don't turn around and then let's say, you know, let's invest that money into a small local 
in journalism startup. No, instead they just don't put the money anywhere. They give it to Google. They give it to Facebook. Um, you know, I think whether it's something like your podcast, I think there's a there's a ton of people who are listening who would probably benefit from hearing ads from I don't know if you want to do ads, but from ads from 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 companies that actually know that your listeners are are engaged and smart and 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 you know worthwhile customers. Well, my take on that, and we need to we need to uh, tie a bow on our conversation around yeah. the paranoid populism and all of that. But uh, I'll I'll leave you with, with this thought. Um, this is our first year. Uh, I mentioned you know we got a grant from a foundation, and it was very hands off. Like, like we like what you do, but just go do it. We're not going to tell you what to do. It just and it's written right into written right into the contract. So that model, uh, while it's new for us, uh, is working very well. And 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 you know maybe maybe foundations uh, dedicated to funding you know independent journalism sure. is one of the is is a good way to go. I, I think that bears. I think that bears uh, uh, somebody t taking that up and seeing if they can make it work. So, the importance of jur of journalism at getting at the facts and leading independent, uh, leading, leading informed evidence based conversations. I think that is. I absolutely agree with you, and we just need a whole lot more of it. And uh, so I guess we'll we'll leave it there. Now, Justin, thank you very much for this. Uh, you shed all sorts of light and provided with us with insights into issues that uh, I had a passing acquaintance with, but really didn't understand that well. And I'll have you back. We'll we'll maybe uh, have you back at, at some point to talk about journalism, funding journalism, sure. and how that ought, ought to work. So I think that's a, a a conversation that needs its its own time. So thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me.